From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we continue our coverage of the October 25th military coup in Sudan. We speak with El Sadr Al Sheikh, the director of the Global Justice Program at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, about the role of external actors in Sudan and their reaction to the recent coup. But first, we hear from Khalid Mustafa Madani. He's an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University. He is the author of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. He spoke with Shahram Aramir about the current political events in Sudan and the prospects for a civilian democratic transition more than two years after a historic revolution and a recent coup. He began the conversation by giving an update on the recent development in Sudan and the mass resistance to the military coup. The military coup was waged by General Abdel Fattah Burhan on October 25th. He dissolved the Civilian uh, Council of Ministers and also the Sovereign Council that was part and parcel of the a partnership agreement and the joint uh, government between military leaders and civilians. Uh, following the coup, there was an immediate reaction in Sudanese civil society. With very little exception, Sudanese protested not only in Khartoum, but throughout the country in their millions. Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok was imprisoned and put under house arrest by General Abdel Fatih Burhan. Hamdok's response was that he would not entertain any mediation if there was no reinstatement of the political dispensation prior to the coup of October 25th and insisted on the legitimacy of his government and the transitional institutions that made up that government following the December 2018 and 2019 revolution. Uh, Following those uh, protests, uh, which were by many accounts initially spontaneous, uh, they were partially organized by the Sudanese Professional Association, but there was such um, unanimous opposition to the military coup and General Abdel Fatih Burhan and his deputy, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who's known of course as Hemeti, the leader of the Sudan Rapid Forces Militia, who's been accused of four crimes in Darfur and also of crimes at the sit-in in the summer of 2019 against uh, young boys and young girls in that sit-in, killing upwards of 200 people. So initially, the protests against the coup were generally spontaneous because of the anger against the coup plotters themselves. And very quickly, it uh, took a form of organization. In other words, not just mobilization against the the coup, but in typical Sudanese fashion, uh, the organizational structures begin to deepen very quickly. By November 2nd, for example, the resistance committees that are, of course, present not only in the greater Khartoum area in the capital city, but throughout the country, announce a schedule of escalation of peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience. That's on November 2nd. And that schedule of escalation really set the stage for a series of forms of nonviolent, peaceful civil disobedience that are now ongoing in Sudan 
in opposition to uh, General Borhan's coup. In November 2nd itself, what was announced by the Resistance Committee Against the Military Coup was um, preparatory work that would lay the groundwork for a mass civil disobedience. This included not only strikes and work stoppages, but very importantly, a series of lectures throughout the neighborhoods in Khartoum and outside of Khartoum to educate protesters uh, with respect to the strategies of resistance, but also to raise their consciousness with respect to the pitfalls associated uh, with the military coup of Burhan and the dire political consequences of this coup, the dire economic consequences, and the ways in which this kind of coup would undermine the life chances and, of course, human rights and even lives, of course, of Sudanese. So that preparatory work of what activists in Sudan call the work of raising consciousness becomes very important. And the next day on November 3rd, the schedule announces nightly street processions that become very important as also, once again, galvanizing Sudanese across the spectrum against this military coup. The night processions become very important because, as you know, immediately after the coup, there was a huge blackout of the internet by the military generals and Burhan. And so the nightly processions become really an important way to communicate across different neighborhoods and to expand the slogans and, of course, the mobilization against uh, this military uh, coup. These were then followed on November 4th uh, by speeches once again in public squares that were safe enough for those, especially at night, to participate in once again to raise consciousness, but also to build a solidarity across the different neighborhoods. And this was conducted and led by the resistance committees, but also in Sudan, what we call neighborhood committees, which are essentially voluntary associations at the grassroots. On November 5th, interestingly enough, and this is important in the Sudanese context, the resistance committees announced lectures in the mosque during and after the Friday prayers to also mobilize those who attended the mosques And then pivotally, on November 6th, um, resistance committees and the Sudanese Professional Association announced uh, two days of mass civil disobedience that would shut the country down. And this is really what is uh, still ongoing in Sudan, where there are some essential stores and other facilities that are open, uh, particularly to provide food and other essential commodities to the population. Uh, Basically, in the Khartoum Great Area and throughout the country, there is now ongoing mass civil disobedience that includes not only strikes, but work stoppages, and of course, the closure of uh, all sorts of businesses uh, in the private as well as the uh, public sector. On November 9th, something very important in Sudan at the grassroots occurs, and that is the night of the barricades. The barricades, of course, are basically at the local level in the neighborhoods, uh, young people especially, but everyone gets involved to put up barricades against um, military forces and particularly militias entering their neighborhood and causing all sorts of havoc, including detention, torture, and arresting and brutalizing uh, protesters. So November 9th, the night of barricades was extremely well attended, very, very successful. And it really plays a very, very important role as part and parcel of a whole wide range of forms of civil disobedience that has made Sudan such an important model for other activists throughout the world. We have an official announcement that was confirmed by the resistance committees and the Sudanese Professional Association that there would be on November 13th, 
once again, the March of the Millions. And it really is extremely important not only to unify Sudanese in their millions in Sudan, opposed to the military coup, but also crucially to signal to the international community the lack of popularity and the lack of constituency that Orhan and his allies actually enjoy in Sudan. Following the military coup, in addition to conventional forms of street protests, Sudanese activists have resorted to direct action to circumvent state actors. There have been strikes in different sectors of the economy, for example. Can you talk about this direct action and civil disobedience campaign and the tactics used and how effective they may be in the Sudanese context? There are two elements associated with uh, direct action in Sudan that have made them very successful. Number one is, is learning from the past. The protest of this type against the former regime of Omar Bashir begin at least in as early as 2011. But is it, it's in 2016 that accompanying a wide-scale protest in Sudan opposed economic austerity, but also the killing of a young student in Sudan who was protesting the Omar Bashir regime, that uh, protesters met a great deal of violence violence. Upwards at least of 70 young people were killed very brutally by the militias and security forces. It is really 2016 activists, especially youth activists, begin to devise and insist upon Silmiya, peaceful protest. And that becomes really central in terms of not only confronting the military might of the militias and the paramilitary groups in Sudan, the security forces, but it also encourages much more bridge-building coalitions and solidarity across different social groups. Uh, so civil disobedience and its nonviolent character becomes a central aspect, but it really has to do very much with efforts at other forms of protest that met with a great deal of violence. So one of the important things is the uh, remarkable insistence on peaceful forms of protest and civil disobedience in the context of scores of people being killed and tortured and a wide range of human rights violations meted against them. So in terms of the mode of protest, uh, this notion of, of nonviolent civil disobedience become important. That, of course, would not be enough if it was not also connected to the very important resistance committees, Lijan uh, al-Muqawama, who organize at the very local level in ways that are essentially decentralized, but also linked up to other neighborhood resistance committees in moments of uh, direct action. That is coordinated by coordinating committee. Each resistance committee has a coordinating committee that links up in moments uh, needed for civil direct civil action in order to basically time and schedule and unify the protest movement and the movement of civil disobedience at the grassroots. A third element is that in addition to the mode of nonviolent civil disobedience, the grassroots organizations of the remarkable resistance committees, you have the coordinating body of the Sudanese Professional Association made up of professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, teachers, professors. Uh, this Sudanese Professional Association then plays the the coordinating linkage between different resistance committees and also a linkage between grassroots mobilization and political parties themselves. That's why the Sunni's Professional Association plays such a, a central role. So the direct action and its remarkable success in Sudan and efficacy has very much to do with um, bridging both horizontal forms of civil disobedience and direct action with vertical forms of coordination and organization. This has become very important 
important throughout the world in terms of this uh, remarkable model. But at the very, very center of this and embedded in all of that, these networks of resistance and civil disobedience is, I would argue, and Sudanese insist upon, the notion of silmiya, peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience. This, of course, is something that not only the resistance committees, but as you can see now with the mass civil disobedience in the country, uh, now encourages other forms, other groups to also engage in civil disobedience, including workers, uh, not only in the public sector, but the private sector. The Sudanese professional associations like to call them wage earners, because that is a way to broaden the solidarity between not only the neighborhood committees, but also workers at the different levels of the social and ladder and in the labor market. It seems to me that looking at uh, Sudan's history, labor organizations played a key role in the uprisings of 1964 and 1985. What can you tell us about this type of mobilization in Sudan today and the lessons that Sudanese activists might have learned from these episodes earlier in their history? Well, they've learned a lot, but that has to be taken um, in the relationship between labor organizing, trade unionist organizing in the context of the authoritarian state in Sudan. Absolutely, in the 1960s and throughout the 1980s, until at least 1989, it was very clear, as you know, the success of the popular uprisings of 1985, and of course also 1964, were really advanced by the organizations associated with workers in both the public sector, but private sector, but also trade unionist as well, which is really important. This particular uh, December revolution of 2018 really really uh, was catalyzed initially by the protest in Akbara, which has historically been a very, very important center of uh, not only the Communist Party, but also labor organizing that was led by the Communist Party. And that becomes really an important part of the catalyst of the December 2018 revolution, where uh, workers really set the stage and model for mobilizing and uh, confronting the authoritarian state of Omar Bashir. We have to finesse it a little bit in terms of what happens in 1989 with the Tamkin or the empowerment policies of um, Omar Bashir. What is crucial in the case of Sudan is that that period under the Islamist regime of Omar Bashir and his allies in the ruling uh, now banned the National Congress Party was to take very seriously, because of the history of the pivotal role of labor and trade organizing in overthrowing authoritarian dictators. And what they did is that they either purged or eliminated or co-opted, or rather, more importantly, set up their own so-called unions linked to the National Congress Party. That was a very, very important effort that, of course, has been utilized across the board in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, and I would argue historically in the African continent as well. And that is to eliminate and or co-opt both trade unions and uh, workers' unions in ways that would what Sudanese call Naqabat al-Mansha, these are parallel unions. In other words, that phrasing is meant to describe or make sure that the entire Sudanese population knows that they do not have legitimacy among workers and the general population. In response to this co-optation of these unions and union life, 
in the 1990s and onwards. What occurred beginning in 2012 and even more in 2013 is the beginning of the building of autonomous workers' unions and trade unions. These included labor unions, both in the public and, and private sector. They included, of course, professional associations that become autonomous and built from the grassroots as well with their own central committees, just like the SPA has its own central committee as well. And those were supposed to and did, in fact, re-legitimize the union life again in the country. It is these unions that are really waging the strikes and civil disobedience, particularly work stoppages and strikes. These encompass not only workers at the level of the industries in Sudan, but also in the service sectors. You have bankers on strike. Only a couple of days ago, we were all really struck and very upset about peaceful protest of uh, teachers in front of the Ministry of Education that led to upwards of 100 arrests and the torture of teachers who were protesting the purging of the teachers themselves in the ministry and their replacement by teachers who basically are part and parcel of the Islamist union. So the kind of labor union organizing and the trade unions themselves, the series of strikes, work stoppages that um, have been so important since late 2018 and continue to be important as central to the mass civil disobedience that is ongoing in Sudan. Its groundwork was laid very early on, I would argue, at least beginning 2012, when union leaders and workers themselves and professionals realized that they had to come up with separate, autonomous, and more legitimate structures in the context of an authoritarian regime that had purged workers' unions, trade unions from the political and social life and economic life of Sudan. And this remarkable resurgence, these workers' trade and professional associations, is why it is so difficult for this military regime to stamp out what is wide-scale civil disobedience. Well, another very important aspect with respect to the workers' unions is that the oil sector itself, as the workers also went on strike. Oil is not the most important and most lucrative export now after the secession of Sudan, but it comes very close uh, a second to representing the most important revenue for the central state following gold assets and gold exports. So over the last week or so, the strikes by oil workers in the oil facilities has really undermined the economic tools of this government, because in addition to gold, of course, oil plays a very important kind of revenue stream for the patronage networks of the regime of General Burhan. This is why it is such a mass civil disobedience workers in the public sector and the private sector, and in addition, not only the service sector, but also because the previous regime had done so much work in terms of purging non-Islamists from the bureaucracy, what we find uh, are strikes and work stoppages from people in the ministries and the, the government bureaucracy. That too plays a very important role in making this mass civil disobedience so remarkably effective. Khaled, the control of Sudan's wealth seems to be at stake in the conflict between the Putschists and the forces resisting a military rule. Both General Burhan and the commander of Sudan's notorious Janjaweed, or they call him officially now Rapid Support Forces, RSF, General Mohammed Hamdan, commonly known as Hemeti and others within the security intelligence circles, have been beneficiaries of large assets that belong to the Sudanese people. What can you tell us about the involvement of these coercive forces 
in Sudan's economy. How extensive are their financial interests? Well, they're very important. This policy of Tamkin, I always go back to it, the policy of empowerment that was pursued by the Islamists once they took over power in the summer of 1989. One of the pillars of this policy advanced in the 1990s was to utilize the state to transfer assets from Sudan's national economy, both private sector and the public sector, into the hands of those that are part and parcel of the Islamist movement, most of whom, of course, are organized and were members of the now banned National Congress Party. So this notion of monopolizing huge swaths of the national economy in Sudan was first really engineered by the leaders of the Islamist movement. Now, to the extent, of course, that they allied themselves with the military, and that begins in the mid-1980s, before Umar Bashir was well known to the world, that relationship between the Islamist movement in their pursuit of the policy of empowerment and their linkage uh, with the military is what has brought us to the situation today. Over perhaps 70% of the national economy, including the private sector, is owned by a series of companies that are linked to the military establishment, and particularly to those who are very influential in um, what we call the Security Committee of the Sudan Armed Forces. These are mostly Islamist or were nurtured and patronized by the Islamist movement. Uh, There are vast industries, economic interests, linked to a whole series, not only with gold and oil, but also commodities that are so important for the livelihoods of Sudanese. They have interest not only in gold and the mineral sector, they have very strong interest and monopolize the fisheries and some agricultural commodities, some of the most lucrative agricultural exports in the country. So it's a wide swath of different types of interest that represent, many would say, over 70% of the economy. That is for certain members that are Islamist associated with the military. In terms of the militias, Ahmed himself, the Galu, his economic linkage is primarily with the gold trade. Very few people are aware of the great gold wealth in Sudan, upwards of $1.2 billion, according to a report of 2014, at least over 90% is smuggled to the markets to Dubai to the United Arab Emirates, for example. Now, it's very clear and well known throughout Sudan, including activists throughout the country, that the majority of this oil wealth is controlled by Hemeti. He has control of at least three gold mines, one in southern Kurdufan, which is one of the largest. He's also in control very much of the smuggling routes. And so this coup was in great part waged to preserve not only political survival of General Burhan and Ahmeti, but I would argue, as and most Sudanese know, that it was waged to preserve the economic interests not only of individuals, but also of former stalwarts of the National Congress Party, and in particular, very, very powerful members of the Islamist movement in the country. These economic interests of the deep state present a very, very important source of patronage for Burhan and Hemeti and their allies. And it is a central reason why they decided that they must intervene to stop a civilian government that had already began to tackle and address these assets that are so important and represent the national wealth of the country, but also to prosecute and make accountable individuals 
who have practiced real corruption and utilized the authoritarian state in order to transfer assets belonging to the people of Sudan into their own coffers. It is difficult to estimate the kind of dollar amount of this wealth that has gone into the pockets of the National Congress Party, the Islamists, the Burhan, and, and the Galu. But there is little question that it is in the billions. And this is why protesters are making it very, very clear that in addition to their demands of reinstating civilian democracy and dissolving these militias, they are very clear about continuing the process that was begun by the committee uh, to dismantle the institutions of the former regime of 1989 to take to task the economic wealth and the corruption that the top-ranking members of the military in alliance with the members of the Islamist movement and the former members of the National Congress Party have. Many of those resisting the coup reject any role for the military and call for full civilian rule. Since the October coup, the Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, has been vowing no negotiation, no partnership, no legitimacy. In its new platform, the SPA demands the formation of a purely civilian transitional ruling body over a four-year period. Can you tell us about the main points in this platform and whether they are representative of the views held by the anti-coup forces? It basically proposes a formation of a government of 20 ministers led by an independent figure, five member civilian sovereign councils that would have basically honorary powers rather than you know, executive power. And also, very importantly, they have called for the formation of a legislative council within two months that restructured the military, bring the military and the civilian, full civilian authority, and of course would pass legislations, very specific calls for not only the reform of the military establishment, but also the dissolution of not only Haimekti's rapid support forces, but at least six other paramilitary militias in the country that have wrecked havoc. So those are the general contours of it. The idea behind it is basically, as you put it, to reflect the calls of the resistance committees and the majority of protesters and those involved in civil disobedience associated with the slogan, no negotiations, no compromise or settlement, no power sharing. Your question about the extent of its popularity, it's very popular, of course, among the majority of Sudanese. If you want to put that in context of the mediation issues, there are three different positions, basically. This is one very important position. The other two positions, which of course are important, is the one of Burhan himself, where he basically is remarkably saying that he has not waged a military coup, he's just making correction to the revolution. Burhan basically refuses to return to the principles of the constitutional declaration. Not only Sudanese, but the entire world finds that unacceptable at the moment. The view of Hamdok, and I would argue the majority of people in the forces of freedom of change outside of the SPA, is to follow Hamdok's uh, prescriptions or, or conditions, and that is political prisoners are released, that Burhan recognizes the military coup, and that there is a return to the joint government and constitutional declaration prior to the coup of, of the 25th. I would like to highlight something that is a little bit, there's a misunderstanding about the position of the Sunnis Professional Association. And that is, there's this discussion, at least let's say in the Western media, that somehow it's an uncompromising and transparent 
intransigent position. In many ways, because of the actions of Burhan, the SPA really, in my opinion, didn't have an option. I know it's a little bit tedious for people who are not Sudan observers to go back to the constitutional declaration, but in suspending the seven articles of the constitutional declaration, taken together, basically, Burhan has abolished the power sharing arrangement. He has abolished the partnership between the civilian leadership and the military leadership. He's taken over both executive power and potential legislative power. And of course, he's argued that he is continuing the road towards a transition to civilian democracy. Outsiders may think the SPA position and the position of the resistance committees, which are in tandem and in, in agreement in this, is somehow intransigent or stands in the way of mediation. The truth of the matter is that it's Burhan who uh, stands in the way of any mediation. And I think the mediators, international and others, have realized that that is in fact the case. He is the one who's refusing any discussion about a return to the constitutional declaration. His main position is clear. He wants to rule, he wants the military to have a monopoly over political power, executive and otherwise, and he wants to replace the most legitimate civilian opposition group in the entire country, the Forces of Freedom of Change, the Sudanese Professional Association, and of course the grassroots resistance committees with members of Islamist movements and members of the now banned National Congress Party. You can see this in the appointment at the cabinet level, the ministerial level, in his discussions and his appointments, and also those he's released from prison, those he's appointed to the central bank, he's appointing to the different ministries, in excluding the most legitimate group in civil society, in his desperation and the sheer unpopularity of his regime, he has now resorted to reappointing members of the Islamist movement and the National Congress Party, many of whom have been in jail and detained for crimes against not only the human rights, but also corruption. In doing so, he hopes to return to the period of April 11th, 2019, in which he and the military uh, committee, the intelligence, the security committee that he is associated with, where they will have full control of managing any kind of transition with the military basically in control of a cosmetically appointed civilian administration and leadership hailing from the Islamist movement and members of the National Congress Party. And of course, that retains and ensures the retention of the kind of economic interests associated with him and the Islamist movements that have controlled the national economy in Sudan since the 1990s. That was Professor Khaled Madani speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the recent developments in Sudan and the mass resistance to the military coup and the prospects for a civilian democratic transition more than two years after a historic revolution and a recent military coup. After a short break, we continue our coverage of the current political turmoil in Sudan with El Sadiq El Sheikh the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Now we are going to switch gears and focus on the role of external actors in Sudan. 
And to do that, I'm joined by El Sadr Al Sheikh, the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Welcome back, Sadr. An inquiry into the role played by external actors in Sudan would result in a long list that includes not only global powers and African countries, but also states such as Israel, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. Sadiq, let's start with the United States government. What has been its reaction to the coup? And how does that fit into the U.S. strategy in the Horn of Africa? The current position of the U.S. administration in general is very positive for two reasons. One is heroic action of the Sudanese people and make sure that the world understand their agency and say how they want to be ruled and how they looking into the future of their country. In this sense, the U.S., for the first time, they read that situation in Sudan very clearly, that if they want to secure their interest in a region, they have to side with the Sudanese people in issues related to democratization, rule of law. Also, the Sudanese people was very firm in anti-extremism that thrived in the region as a whole. So the Sudanese people demonstrated time and again, that's what they want from the international community to take note and to support their struggle for democratization and rule of law. But really, we must always remember that Sudanese people have their agency through their struggles, through their organizing and mobilizing, and they make sure that they can speak for themselves. So the subaltern now is speaking in Sudan. So they say that's what they want. And it's a very wise strategy of the U.S. to think clearly and not to make another mistake. So the 80s and 90s and the beginning of 2000, that the world understand where people are at. Also, we have to understand that the general strategy of the United States in the Horn of Africa Even though many people will maybe detest or contest that there is no grand strategy in the Horn of Africa from the U.S. perspective, which is, I might agree, but at least they have some guidelines. So for the U.S., it was very important that the region to have stability and the competition between the United States and China as well in the whole continent of Africa, but in particular in the Horn of Africa, that make uh, United States to appeal through its own strategy to the people's sentiment. If United States is looking for stability, they have no other solution but to side with the civilians in Sudan rather than the military. So we have to really recognize that the United States and the European Union have a very firm reaction in siding with the Sudanese people against the military takeover. And they established several initiatives. One of them, they sending their special envoy to the Horn of Africa, to Sudan. I believe he's currently in Sudan to engage in negotiation to get out of this crisis. They try to figure out the best way for stability in Sudan. And there is a good resolution in the U.S. Congress right now. It's being tabled, Resolution 188, which is calling for targeted sanctions. Again, it's a member of the military junta. They're calling for the Secretary of State to immediately identify the co-leaders and their accomplices for consideration for targeted sanctions. And here I have to underscore this. Unrestricted sanctions, again, is the country... It never works. It's never going to work. It's only going to hurt people. But targeted sanctions, again, is 
people who inflicted pain on the Sudanese people, especially the military junta, is needed to be implemented immediately. The U.S. has also suspended $700 million in to Sudan immediately following the coup to show their objection to the coup. Let me just say a couple of things about the double standard of Western power in general. They try to bat themselves in the back that they are pro-democratization and rule of law. But at the same time, and we've seen this since the demise of al-Bashir regime in 2019, that they imposition and inflicting ban through neoliberal economic reforms in Sudan. So they kept Prime Minister Hamdok's government, his hand tied behind his back because of the neoliberal reform that they suggested for him to pursue in order to receive some funding from overseas, including in particular, not only the $700 million from the U.S. government, but also scratching out that almost 90% of the Sudan foreign debt, which is mounted to $60 billion, which is all welcome news. But at the same time, they give by the right hand and they take by the left hand, meaning that they make life unbearable for Sudanese people when they forcing the government to enact neoliberal reforms excessive privatization of land, enabling foreign direct investment, uh, relaxed regulation against multinational company and all that. All this is not going to help in the long term the democratization of rule of law. The opposite will increase strengthen elitist style of economy. Second, will increase and exacerbate pre-existing corruptions one of the issues that the uh, cool military junta leaders stated in why they did the military coup, they don't call it military coup, is to lift the burden of the economic difficulties on the Sudanese people. But who make this situation unbearable for the Sudanese people? It's the same the international financial institutions are supported by United States and the European Union. And in that sense, this is a long struggle for people of the global south against new liberal reforms. Sadr, the Horn of Africa has been a site of contestation and competition between major powers. The U.S. is not the only country with security, political and economic interests in Sudan and the Red Sea region. Neither Russia nor China has joined the U.S. and the European powers in condemning the coup. What can you tell us about their approach to Sudan during the 2018-2019 protests, as well as the October 25th military coup? And what interests are they pursuing in Sudan? The two countries have a different approach to Africa. Russia always kept the relationship with Sudan at arm's length throughout modern history of Sudan. But let's just focus in the current period or the period of 2018-2019. So Russia always has a desire to have access to war moral. With that, I mean the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And this is nothing new. But what's new is uh, the kind of totalitarian outlook of the regime in Russia uh, with the leadership of Putin. He can care less about any people's desire or demands as much as he can secure their own geopolitical interest. So in this sense, Russian Federation never be trusted as an actor for goodwill or siding with people's sentiment around the world. And the Sudanese people, I don't think they will forget the ugly and dirty role of Russian Federation within the UN Security Council when they rejected and they opposed 
condemning what happened in October 25th of 2021 at the military coup. I saw in social media people carrying out slogan against Russia within the protesters. So the Sudanese people are extremely aware of when a superpower side against them. And I think we will come back to hunt Russia in relation to democratization and civil society in Sudan. China as well, their interest in the continent is very well documented. I don't need to go through it in the continent of Africa. They already established trade and investment relationship with the Sudanese regimes during dictator al-Bashir and during the transitional period. And I believe they will continue. Always China hide behind non-interference policy, which is a sham for a rising superpower that has its own obligation, even if they cannot adhere to liberal democracy, which could be understood, but to the rule of law and to the people desire. So both countries, in competition with the United States over the natural resources of the continent of Africa, they pursue all avenues. And here I have to say, I will differentiate between Russia and China. Russians are more aggressive. They result to backdoor dark alleys dealings. They're alliance with State of Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with United Arab Emirates. It's not a secret. So they pursue any type of dirty work that the United States used to do it in the 1980s. So now the China of Russia. And that, by virtue of the matter, will create instability and even might lead to civil wars. And we can see that demonstrated clearly in the case of Libya. This is important to highlight the authoritarian tendencies of the Russian government and how it aligns itself with a military junta in Sudan. I was reading about close cooperations between Rapid Support Forces, RSF, paramilitary forces in Sudan and the Russian mercenaries. Absolutely. They work is very well documented, especially in the case of Libya. Their participation in Libya, the Sudanese mercenary and the Russian mercenary work hand in hand with our warlord Haftar. Again, it's a national unity government of Libya. And the same forces, they will go and guard and secure smuggling gold from Sudan to United Arab Emirates. So you have to pull yourself out a little bit to look from a thousand feet above to see how the whole new geostrategic competition of rearranging one, the larger Middle East, second, is the continent of Africa as a place of new colonial competition. So those things always interplay and alliances forge and change and position change. But what remains, the desire of those forces to compete for the natural resources of that region. A lot of people try to elevate more the role of rearrangement of the Middle East. But I think Africa is a battleground. It's always been and it's going to continue to be. Africa possesses things that maybe the larger Middle East does not have. Africa also rich with oil. But Africa also rich with water, arable lands, and above all, young labor force, and besides the mineral and other stuff. So putting all together, Africa became a strategic place for who will compete on the fate of people of the African continent. And that's the reason why we see aggressive and sometimes bloody intervention from unholy alliance, like who could imagine that Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Russia will be in the same camp, for example, or the United Arab Emirates, who prides themselves as quote-unquote anti-Islamist, will also support Islamists in the region. It really doesn't matter. 
for example, yesterday, the first normalization with the criminal regime of Assad in Syria is led by the Emiratis. The foreign minister of United Arab Emirates now is in Damascus, you know, trying to pave the way for a return of Assad into the Arab leagues and the international community. So those unholy alliances always going to shift. But one will remain resolute is our people's sovereignty and agency. The time is up for dark alleys dealings. Now people are speaking and they want democratization and rule of law. You can have international relation and foreign investment and all that, but it has to be transparent and it has to be based on international rule of law. Sadiq, Russia and Sudan actually signed an agreement on military cooperation in May 2019 calling for a Russian naval base on the Red mm-hmm. Sea. True. And for China, the issue seems to be more economic than military. Sudan, for them, is part of this arrangement called China Belt and Road Initiative through the Middle East to uh, Central Asia. The distinction is warranted here between the position or the aspiration of Russia and China. They might seem the same, but they are different. Different in the sense that Russia... Their primary goal is access to more U.S. strategic position vis-a-vis their own military presence in the region. For China, always been the case that they never use their military or militaristic strategy to access or to support their economic interests. So there is a difference between the two. And I don't have that much to say about China relation because China relation always been based on their economic interest. Whether we agree or disagree, that's a different thing. But the Russian dealing is completely different because, for example, in last couple of years, I signed a military deal with even with al-Bashir to have a military base in the Red Sea for their naval forces there. So they are very keen to continue to have that accessibility into the Red Sea to defend their own interests in the wider region. And military base of a foreign power like Russia will always going to call into question the stability of the region. What I'm trying to say here, we all calling for non-meddling into the region's affair, whether that's from China or Russia or United States or a smaller regional power like United Arab Emirates, Israel and Saudi Arabia. So we need to hold those power to account that they cannot, in the one hand, support calling for democratization, human rights, and rule of law. And in the other hand, they continue to support militaristic intervention in the region. That is not going to go well for our people, whether those people in Sudan or the wider region or in the Middle East. It's not going to result in economic, political, social stability. It's always going to be in war by proxy. And the time is up for new colonial adventures in the continent of Africa. Sadiq, in October 2020, Sudan agreed to a U.S. broker deal to normalize ties with Israel following similar moves made by United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. But Prime Minister Hamdouk insisted that the agreement would need to be approved by Sudan's parliament. Following the coup, an Israeli official said that Israel should support the coup in Sudan because General Burhan was, and this is a quotation, more inclined to bolster ties with the U.S. and Israel, the end of the quote, than the deposed Prime Minister Hamdok. What is Israel looking for in Sudan and how significant has its role been in Sudan? 
I think you frame it very well. The main quest of Israel in a region, and particularly in Sudan, is, is multiple. One of them is normalizing relationship with different states in the continent of Africa to circumvent the stood and a strong opposition to the state of Israel occupation of Palestinian territory since 1967. So if you know that an unwavering solidarity and support that the African countries across the board for a long period of time, not anymore today, there was an opposition to the occupation of the Palestinian territories. So for Israel, since the 1970s, they always pursued a way in which to get footing into the African continent by normalized relationship. And I have to admit, they succeeded in many countries now. In 1967, there was a very important conference called for by Sudan for the Arab League. They call it the Conference of the Al-Ata Salafa, which is the three no's. No recognition, no normalization, and no peace with the state of Israel while it's occupied territories. So Sudan always been an important space to break the will of the people in their solidarity with the Palestinian people's struggle. The second thing, the mounting pressure of the BDS campaign against the state of Israel made Israel extremely aggressive for normalizing and try to abolish its own image in the international community. And the other two items that I think Israel would love to access is to join the African Union as a monitoring member. As you know, last month, their proposal defeated, but being tabled because of the mounting opposition led by South Africa and Algeria, again, is accepting Israel as a monitoring member in the African Union. And the last things I will say about that is also Israel always wanted to access the Red Sea. That's very important for them to strengthen their grip on the new emerging Middle East and to have its own holy alliance with reactionary monarchies, regimes in the region. So Sudan represents a geostrategic important position for ambitious colonial power like Israel in the region. So if we return back to the October 2020, the meeting between former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and General Burhan, which is done behind the awareness of the Sudanese government of Prime Minister Hamdok. And when the news broke out through Twitter of <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu, it exposed the back alley that I mentioned earlier dealing that the military, the military junta in Sudan is always in collaboration to access more power in Sudan by inviting external power like Israel. And Hamdok, rightly so, he opposed it in principle because the transitional government of Sudan, based on the constitutional charter that signed in 2019, they have no say whatsoever in dealing with normalization or forging new relationship in international community. That task is being relegated to the Sudanese parliament, which we didn't have then and we don't have now, because they are very afraid that an elected through free and fair election parliament, normalization is not going to pass through the Sudanese parliament. I'm saying this not based on abstract analysis, but based on when the news about normalization broke out, most of the Sudanese political party from left to right oppose this move. And as a result, today, 
to take the normalization in further step is being tabled to insular. Given the geopolitics of the Middle East and North Africa, and the alignment of forces in the region, as you mentioned earlier, it would make sense to discuss Sudan policies of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates, and Israel at the same time. That said, how would you describe the policies of these three states? I'm referring to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates. How would you describe the individual interests of each state as well as their common interests in Sudan? Indeed, each of those countries have really different interests in Sudan. Let's start with our big neighbor to the north. Egypt always feeling that the big brother to the Sudanese state before independence, after independence. And Sudan represent, if you will, the southern space for national security of Egypt. It's always Egypt viewed Sudan as such, not as equal neighbor. And you have to remember that the whole survivor of the Egyptian state rely on the water of the river Nile, which flow from Sudan to Egypt. So the Egyptian political elite and the Egyptian state always favoring all military coups in Sudan. Throughout history, there is no singular military coup happening in Sudan without the support of Egypt. So this one is not even new. However, Let's move to the other countries, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. You know, the Sudanese diaspora have massive number of Sudanese reside and work in those two states for at least the last 50 years. So the presence of Sudanese and the relationship is really extended between peoples and also economies. But the ambitions of Saudi Arabia to call any desire for democratization in the region with the fear that it will expand into their own territory make them very, very aggressive in combating all democratic uh, or social change in the region. So it is really very well documented how the Saudi Arabia for longer period of time since the 80s been in support of all extremism in the Islamic regions with no exception. Regardless of today, they try to fight it back, but that's their own. They give birth to that with the United States and their strategy since the invasion of the Soviet to Afghanistan in 1979. Now, the new rising power, the state of United Arab Emirates, since the 90s, they try to forge a new geopolitical and global role for them as a financial center, quote-unquote, for the region. So their ambition and ambition of their ruler is also to make sure that to have access to agricultural land, minerals such as gold, and safe passage to oil trade from Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. So all this will put the country in their way, you know, Sudan, one of those countries, in their passage for securing their interests. They are not reluctant to use all tools available to them. One of them is corrupting the elites, and the second, mounting military coups, again, is democratization, a rule of law in the region. And we know very well the defeat of the quote-unquote Arab Spring in the region is really led by the Saudis and the Emiratis in the region, later on by the support of the Egyptians. Therefore, they would be against any democratic transformation. And that's not something unique to Sudan. If we look in Algeria, if we look into Morocco, Tunisia, or Libya, or even Egypt itself, Yemen, Bahrain, Lebanon, and wherever you turn your eye, the United Arab Emirates even involved into the European state of the affair, like in the UK, 
corrupting all political power and parliamentarians. Even in the United States, there is a lot of evidence broke in the New York Times several years ago about how United Arab Emirates tried to corrupt, for example, civil society organization and major think tank. Saudi Arabia very well known for going after journalists around the world. Adnan Khashoggi case in point, but there is many Khashoggi's that we don't know about. So those two major powers, their absolute fear of the social change that might come to the doorsteps. So they have to fight it even outside their own countries. So they're spending massive amount of financial resources into supporting all autocracies like the Russian Putin's, or we know very well the relationship with Donald Trump, for example. So they have no desire whatsoever. They don't even stay on the sideline when there is a democratization taking place uh, nearby, like in Sudan. Sadiq, given these geopolitical factors that you have been discussing and the internal dynamics of Sudan, are you optimistic about the outcome of the current struggle against the military coup in Sudan? Yes, indeed, I'm extremely optimistic. I'm optimistic for several reasons. One of them is a heroic struggle of the Sudanese people despite oppression, state of emergency, and the economic situation. I'm also optimistic because of the heroic struggle of the Sudanese youth and women. It's really strong when we in the diaspora, we see our people, youth and women struggling despite all odds. And they are so committed and firm in their desire to live under a democratic system and rule of law. You have no other option but to be optimistic. And I also understand that very clearly that, you know, that's not the end of the road. Democratization is about process and the Sudanese people continue to learn from their own experimentation, mistakes they made in the past, success they have in the past. All this makes me extremely optimistic about the fate and the future of Sudan. It doesn't really matter if this is military junta hijacks the space for a minute or two. The final say is in the side of our people. Young people, women, civil society organization from left to right, all of them are resolute in one particular issue, civilian role, democratization, rule of law. That's what they want. And that's what they will get. When I see their heroic struggle for somebody here privileged in the diaspora, I have no other way except to be extremely optimistic. El-Sadiq El-Sheikh is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. You may read El-Sadiq El-Sheikh's article titled Sudan After Revolt, Reimagining Society, Surviving Vengeance in the 2019 issue of Critical Times. Earlier, we heard from Khaled Madani, He's an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University and author of the new book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. They spoke with Shahram Aghamir. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina radio at gmail.com. 
Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.